Well, today is week three of Why Jesus Hates Religion, and the last couple weeks have been absolutely amazing as we've been shifting culture here. We've been breaking out of a religious mentality to a mentality where we become followers of Jesus Christ. We learn that it's not about religion, it is about relationship, and if you, if you value Christ, if you value relationship, then you'll always value mercy over sacrifice. You'll value relationship over ritual. You'll value love over law because what religion does is values law over love, values ritual over relationship, and values sacrifice over mercy. See, Jesus taught all of this and because there's this religious trap that's trying to suck us in as believers. We talked last week about the checklist, where you get your checklist out. If I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, then I can earn God's love, earn his acceptance. I can be good enough where God will love me and God will accept me. And that's what religion is. You know, the first week we talked about the stairway to heaven and how religion is the stairway to heaven. Religion is man's attempt to get to God, whereas Jesus was God's way to get to man. See, we can't build a stairway to heaven, but Jesus built a stairway from heaven. And so what can happen with us, if we live a religious lifestyle, we can actually be a barrier instead of a bridge and support opposite values of Christ and prevent people from entering into God, prevent people to coming to Christ. And what we're going to talk about today, we're going to dig into Luke chapter 15, looking at the First couple verses to begin with, but Luke chapter 15, we're going to dig into a parable, a story that Jesus tells. And I want to get into it this morning with you because we're going to see what I pray this morning with this message. It's called the heart of the father is that I pray this morning, you'll discover the heart of the father. You'll discover the character of God. You'll discover who God is maybe for the first time. Because the reality is there's a lot of you that have been in church your whole life and still don't know the heart of the father. Because you've seen religion, you've been taught religion, you've been, you've, you've been trained with religion, and religion will prevent you from seeing the heart of God. Religion prevents us from understanding the character of God. Look at this, Luke 15, let's begin with the first two verses. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him. Drew near to who? To Jesus. They drew near to Jesus. Now, let me modernize that just a little bit for you. If we were reading Luke chapter 15 today, it would say, now all the gangbangers, all the drug dealers, all the pornographers, all the, 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 those, those greedy people on Wall Street that destroyed the economy, all those sinners drew near to Jesus because they wanted to hear Jesus. So these are the bad people. These are messed up. These aren't good church-going people. These are the messed up people of society. They're the people that nobody else wants to be around because they're sinners, they're dirty, they're filthy, they're wicked. And yet they drew near to Jesus because they wanted to hear Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes, what does that turn into for us today? That's religion. That's religious people. The Pharisees and the scribes, they complain. Why? Because religion always complains. If you ever hear a complainer in church, nine times out of 10, it's because they have a religious spirit. There's a religious foundation that bases their complaint for this or for that because religion likes to complain. They complain about Jesus. Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with sinners. Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with those wicked people. Jesus, he should, he should be with the church. He should be with the Pharisees and the scribes. He shouldn't be with all those filthy sinners and they complain. And then they said, this man, Jesus, receives sinners, or he accepts sinners, and he eats with them. 
Now, why is that so powerful? Well, if you know Middle Eastern culture back from this day and age, from the time Jesus was alive, the Middle Eastern culture back then, it was a big deal to have dinner with somebody. It wasn't just some casual thing. Like we like to say, hey, I'll meet you at uh, Bugada Beppo or I'll meet you at McDonald's or I'll meet you somewhere for dinner. Back then, this was a big, big deal. In this Middle Eastern culture of this day and age, to have dinner with somebody was, was a very spiritual experience. In fact, a lot of the religions back then taught that there was this, this mystical union that took place when you had dinner with somebody. That, that when you had dinner, you were making a statement that I accept this person, I endorse this person, this person is part of me. That's why breaking bread together was such a big deal in the Bible. And in fact, it gets into why communion was such a big deal. And for those of you that love communion, like I love communion, uh, we are launching communion at our all-church prayer meeting February 24th. We're launching our very first all-church prayer meeting. We're going to have one all-church prayer every single month. And every for, for those of you that love the time of family bonding and communion, we're going to have communion at every one of our all-church prayer and all-church worship nights. And people ask, well, why not do it on Sunday morning? Well, why didn't Jesus serve communion to the 5,000? See, communion was held in the upper room with the disciples. It was the family. It was the close-knit group of people. Our Sunday service, that's our public time to reach people. That's our public time to bring in the lost and build the church and let people experience the goodness of God. And so our family time at our all-church prayer, and we will have communion on Sundays every once in a while, but every single month we're going to be sharing communion as a family, just like Jesus and his disciples did at our all-church prayer and worship night. So I can't wait for our first all church prayer of 2011, it is going to be a powerful night. And so Jesus is here eating with these bad people. And Jesus says, I accept these people no matter what they have done and even before they change. See, that was the powerful thing. These sinners didn't repent before they had dinner with Jesus. Jesus was saying, I accept you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, even before you change, I accept you. By eating with them, he was saying, I love you and I accept you no matter what you've done, regardless of if you ever accept me back. See, Jesus was making a statement, I love you. Jesus was making a statement, you are accepted. And the religious people got upset because he shouldn't be eating with those sinners. They haven't repented. They're not living right. Why is Jesus hanging out with them? And then in verse 3, he says this, Jesus spoke this parable to them saying, now I want you to understand something about this chapter. There's, there's three stories, but there's not three parables. See, a lot of people look at Luke 15 and they say, okay, there's the parable of the lost sheep. There's the parable of the lost coin. And there's the parable of the lost son. There's not, it's one parable. Jesus spoke this to him. He spoke one parable to him that had three parts to the story, but it was one story, not three stories. Why is that significant? Because what Jesus is doing is giving us a representation of the Trinity. The Trinity is three in one. That's God as three persons in one. It's, believe me, this is tough to comprehend with the human mind. I still haven't got it down. Three in one. And that's what this parable is. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you three characteristics of who God is. The three personalities or the three distinct pictures of God. We have the parable of the lost sheep and the good shepherd that goes and looks for the lost sheep. Well, that's representative of Jesus, the son. Jesus was the good shepherd. Jesus is the one that came to look for the lost sheep. 
Then there's the story of the woman who searches the house high and low for the lost coin. That represents the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit searches to and fro. The Holy Spirit searches our heart. Then you have the story of the father. You have the story of the father waiting for the lost son to return. And what Jesus is giving you is a great illustration. He's giving you a perfect illustration of the heart of the father. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at this story. This is God. This is the Father. This is what the Father is like. This is what the Father's house is like because it talks about the Father's house. Well, what does the Father's house represent today? The local church. Jesus is saying, this is what the local church should be. This is what the heart of the Father is to the lost. And the problem, why why that becomes so important is because there's a lot of people in church today that have no idea what the heart of the Father is like. See, a lot of people today are looking at the Father as this strict principle, just waiting for them to mess up, to get called to the office, to get, you know, a spanking or demerits or detention. And they're just, you know, a lot of people look at God as this angry taskmaster just waiting to strike them down as soon as they mess up. And that's the reality. That is most people's perception of who God is because that's what religion teaches you. You have to earn God's love. You have to earn his acceptance. You have to work hard enough so that God will love you and God will accept you. Now, look at this story with me. Let me set it up. The prodigal son, he takes off. He takes his inheritance. He goes and he lives a wild life, spends it on prostitutes, spends it on drugs and alcohol and partying, and he's living in the slop. He's just an absolute mess. He's a wreck. And the Bible says he's living in this slop, living in this pig pen. How many know there's a lot of people in the North County living in slop right now? They're broken. They're hurting. They're just looking for somewhere where they can be accepted. Looking for for, for someone that will take them back, just living in this slop. And here's this prodigal son sitting in this slop, just made a mess of his life, just absolutely ruined his life. And he says, look, even at my father's house, the servants are treated better than this. Maybe, maybe my father will make me a slave or a servant. Maybe he'll just, you know, maybe if, if, if I work hard enough and I show him I've changed and I, and, and I can really prove myself to him, maybe the father will accept me back. And he takes a step home. And the amazing thing about this story is as soon as the father's sitting on the front porch and in the distance, as soon as he sees his son stepping towards him, the father just takes off running, embraces his son, loves his His son never even had a chance to say he was sorry, and the father is running towards him. That's the beauty of God. You just have to take a step, and God's going to come running to you. You just have to take just, just, just the slightest step towards God, and he's going to come running to you. That's the heart of the father. Then we pick up the story because I want to really focus today, not so much about the prodigal son, but I want to talk about the prodigal son's older brother. Because in this story, the older brother represents religion. The older brother represents that religious spirit. The older brother represents the way most not most, but a way a lot of churches in America today operate. A lot of churches have the spirit of the older brother instead of the spirit of the father. Look at this, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, I want you to circle that word Mary in your Bible. They began to celebrate. They began to be happy. They began to be merry. 
That's the heart of the father. Celebration, happiness, joy, life. My son was dead and he's alive now. Now verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and he asked what these things mean. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go into the father's house. He wouldn't go into the father's house. He stood on the outside angry and would not go in, the Bible says. The first point I want to make today is religion despises freedom. Religion despises despises freedom. The first thing the brother did was despise what was going on. He despised what the father was. He despised what was happening in the father's house. He stood on the outside, wouldn't go in, and he despised what the father was doing. Despised what was happening in the house. The older brother was focusing on the wrong thing. The older brother was focusing on his brother's sin and not the father's goodness. He was focusing on the weakness of man instead of the goodness of God. And he hears this dancing going on. And let me tell you something. They must have been having one serious party for the brother to hear the music all the way out in the field. I'm not talking about this little kumbaya singing a couple hymns. They were throwing down. I mean, they had, it, it was going up in here, up in here. I mean, they were having a good time up in there. They were celebrating. I mean, they were having a feast, they were having a party, there's music, there's dancing. It wasn't a Holy Ghost hop. I mean, they were getting down dancing. I mean, where I come from in Texas, they were doing some boot scooting boogieing. I mean, it was going on. And the brother hears it, and they shouldn't be dancing in the father's house. They shouldn't be celebrating. The father's, that, that shouldn't be going on in the father's house. See, that's the spirit of religion. The spirit of religion despises freedom. It despises celebration. It despises life-giving and joy. Let's go back to verse 27 for a second. Look at this. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore, the father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've been slaving for you, Dad. I've been serving. See, that's the spirit of religion. Somebody gets saved and they start celebrating and they, and, and, and God, I've been serving you all these years. How many have ever met a religious person that they love to brag about how many years that I've been serving God, I've been sacrificing for the Lord all these years? So let me, let me explain something. We, as a staff, as our core team, we've taken the word need out of our vocabulary. Like when it comes to volunteers, we don't need volunteers at Coastline. Why? Because my God shall supply all of our needs. We don't have to serve at Coastline. We get to serve at Coastline. See, there's a difference. It's not that I've been slaving for you, God. I've been serving for you. No, I get to serve you. See, instead of the brother saying, Father, I have been so blessed to be able to serve you all these years. Father, it's been such an honor and such a joy that you've allowed me to be part of your family, that you've allowed me to be in your house. You know, the brother's response was, I've been serving you for all these years, Father. Let me hear the spirit of religion in that. Feel that, that religious spirit. God, I've been sacrificing for you. God, I've been slaving for you. God, I've been, I've been earning my, my keep, Lord. God, I've been working, earning my keep for you all these years. And then he goes on to say, I have never 
transgressed your commandment at any time. Come on. Has anyone ever raised a teenager? Does anyone have a teenager that has never transgressed your commandment at any time? I mean, this kid is lying. I've never. Yeah, I, yeah, I, love, I love teenagers. They're, they're funny creatures. You know, I, I had a friend the other day. I was at my friend's house, and he has this, this teenager, and he was like, Dad, you never let me do that. Well, really? I mean, I let you do it like at least 10 times last week. I mean, it's funny. They always, you never, you never, you never. And then, and then you always hear this other one. Well, everybody else gets to do it. Well, who's everybody else? Well, well, and they can name like one person, and that's it. See, religion puts blinders on you where you can't see beyond the plank in your eye, but you can sure see the speck in somebody else's eye. See, that's the type of religious blinders. And then look at this. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Let me tell you something, people. The word never would destroy relationships faster than ever. You know, you should, the married couples in our church, you should outlaw the word never in your marriage. There's nothing that destroys relationships faster. Well, you never do this and you never do that. And you never, there's nothing that will destroy a relationship faster than the word never. That's just a side note, but you should do it because it'll help you. Verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours came home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf. What is he saying? As soon as your, this son came home, who spent all your money on prostitutes and drugs and drinking and parties, you're now going to throw a party for him? You're going to celebrate for him? You're going you're gonna to kill the fatted calf? What was he saying? See, the older brother had a problem. He liked it the way it was. The older brother didn't want to change. He liked the father's house just the way it was because it was nice. He was the center of attention. He, he was the star of the little world. And now that his brother came home, he was no longer the only person there. He was no longer the center of attention. And he didn't want to change. He liked it the way it was. We don't need to add anyone else to our family, Dad. We're fine. We've got our family. We've got our little thing. It feels good. It feels right. Let's not change it. Let's not shake it up. Let's not do anything differently. Sounds like church, doesn't it? Oh, we don't want to do anything differently. We don't want to change anything. You know, God forbid we grow and reach the unsaved. You know, we kind of have a good thing going here. Let's, let's keep our little group happy. Let's not shake the boat. I'm going to go on before I get in trouble. Instead of focusing on the goodness of God, he's focusing on the weakness of man. And that's what religion does every time. See, they value sacrifice over mercy, ritual over relationship, law over love. They focus on man's weakness instead of God's goodness. And he said to him, the father said to him, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. Everything. It's all yours. I've already given the inheritance to your brother. Everything I have, it is yours. Verse 32, it is was right. I want you to say those three words with me. It was right. What was right? What what is the father saying was right? That we should make merry and be glad, that we should celebrate, that we should have joy, that we should have some fun and celebrate. It is right. That is the right thing to do in the father's house. It was right, Jesus said. 
the father said, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and now is found. It is right to celebrate in the house of God. It is right to have fun and have joy and be life-giving and have a celebration. It is right that we be, see, religion always has the attitude that, well, 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 he's getting off free. There needs to be more repentance. There needs to be more sadness. He needs to earn our acceptance back. We can't just forgive him and let him go on with his life. He's got to work for it. He needs to grovel. He needs to beg. He needs to, to suffer a little while before we accept him back. This needs to be solemn and somber. We need to be reverent in the Father's house. This needs to be more serious, more repentance. He needs to be punished. But you know what? You know why the father said it was right to be married? You know why the father said it was right to celebrate? Because somebody was punished. Because somebody did suffer. Because somebody was broken and forgotten and rejected and carried the curse of the world and suffered and died so that we could celebrate at the return of the lost sons. And the lost daughters. Jesus Christ suffered. Jesus Christ was punished. That's why you don't have to earn it. That's why you don't have to work for it. That's why you don't have to be punished when you come back to Jesus. We don't need to, you don't need to go from sadness. You can come back and celebrate because Jesus already paid the price for you. And when we come into the house of God, people need to be met with celebration. They need to be met with excitement. They need to be met with joy. They need to be met with a life-giving, powerful, full of faith, celebration-type church. It needs to be a party on Sunday morning. People need to come to the house of God, and they need to be all, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday. I can't wait to get to church on Sunday. Man, if I can just get to church on Sunday, we're going to celebrate the goodness of God. We're going to love on God. It's an atmosphere where I can feel on fire for God. My dreams can find the fuel they need to survive. If I can just get to church, there's people that will love me. There's people that will build me up. There's people that will encourage me. There's just this, this party atmosphere for Jesus. I'm not talking about a worldly, carnal, fleshly type of celebration. I'm talking about celebrating the goodness of the Father. And yes, of course there needs to be repentance. And if you read the story, the son did repent. But there is a big difference from being somber and being sober. See, religion wants you to be somber, but God just wants you to be sober. And the problem with religion is religion will confuse holiness with harshness. Somehow, if you are holy, you're going to be more strict. If you're holy, you're going to be more hard on people. If you're more holy, you're going to have more rules and you're going to have a longer checklist. But that is religion. And, I, you know, you walk into some churches, you get the holy glare. Let me know what I'm talking about. I don't know about him. I don't know about this new pastor. I'm just going to watch for a while. I don't know if I can agree with what the father's doing in his house. Father needs to prove himself before I accept this guy. You get the holy glare. I can tell you about the holy glare. It's fun being a new pastor. But I'm just going to go on and serve Jesus. Give me the glare. I'm just going to serve Jesus. I'm just going to love people and serve Jesus and create an environment where people can get saved and find God and find love. 
See, the older brother liked to stand and watch. He stood on the outside. He wouldn't get in to the father's house. He wouldn't accept the vision or, or what was, he just wanted to stand on the outside and watch for a while. See, that's religion. See, relationship is when you trust God and say, okay, God, if you're in this thing, I trust you. I may not understand it. It it may not make sense to me, but God, this is your house and I'm going to trust you because I have relationship with you and I'm going to jump on board. See, I know what it was like to be religious. When I got saved, I got around the wrong group of friends. I mean, I had the most religious friends you've ever seen. I mean, when I got saved, I had to wear a Christian t-shirt every day or they made me feel like I was rotten. I mean, if I had anything other than Christian music on my car, and I had to have my car covered with Christian bumper stickers. That's why I love my Christian bumper stickers from the bubble last week. I mean, it, it was all about looking the part, acting the part. My hair had to be a certain way. I had to dress a certain way if I wanted to go to church. I couldn't just go to church as I was because people were going to look down on me because I didn't look right or act right. And I remember what it was like getting born again under religion. And it wasn't fun. It wasn't relationship. It was the spirit of the older brother. It wasn't the spirit of the father. And the problem was when I was born that way, I began to condemn everyone else that wasn't like me. If they weren't serving God the way I was serving God, I would look down on them. I would judge them. I would condemn them. If they didn't have the same preferences that I had about my faith, then I would look down on them. And I started putting my burdens on other people until God finally freed me. See, religion despises freedom. God wants us to be married. He said it is right that we be married. It is right that we celebrate. It is right that we have fun with the goodness of God. See, what would have happened if the older brother would have focused on the, instead of focusing on the weakness of his brother, would have focused on the happiness of his father? What would have happened to the older brother if he would have said, my father's so happy. Look at my father. This is a wonderful day to see my father this happy. This is a wonderful day to celebrate because my father's son was lost. He was dead and he's alive and he's found. It would have radically changed his life. Second thing I want to talk about is religion criticizes from afar. Religion loves to criticize, but it always does it from afar. Have you ever noticed that? It's always third party. It's always communicating through someone else. Someone else is delivering their complaint to you because because they want to stand from afar. He stood on the outside of the house. Something must be wrong with that church because they're growing too fast. They must not be preaching the truth. I've heard that so many times. They're not preaching the truth or they wouldn't be growing like that. If they were preaching the truth, they would be small. Listen, there is a difference between walking the narrow way and having a narrow mind. There is a big difference. As followers of Jesus, we walk a narrow way, but it doesn't mean we have a narrow mind. If you have a narrow mind, you can't read the Bible. Because you have to go to the word of God with an open mind. You've got to go to the word of God, open it up and say, Holy Spirit, teach me what this means. Teach me what this says. Open me up to receive this type of truth so that I can understand. See, what they're really saying is at that church, they're not harsh enough. See, when you hear people say, well, they don't preach the truth there, what they're really saying is they're not harsh enough. They're not hard enough. They're not mean enough. They're not somber enough. They're not reverent enough. But the Bible says the kingdom of heaven celebrates when lost people are saved. I mean, you know, every time a sinner comes to God, every time a lost person is saved, they're throwing a party up in heaven. The angels are dancing. They're having a good time. They're celebrating. They're going for it. Why? Because someone that was lost was found. Somebody that was dead is alive. But doesn't the Bible also say in the Lord's Prayer, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven? 
Well, see, if the Lord's Prayer says that I should pray that it be done on earth as it is in heaven, then when lost people save, shouldn't we celebrate? Shouldn't the church be a celebration of God's goodness? Shouldn't Sunday morning be a celebration of the happiness of our Father when lost people are returning and people are getting saved? See, that's what it's all about. See, I have a friend in Washington. Actually, I've got uh, a couple of board members from the church, Morris and Cheryl, visiting us today. One of my best friends up in Washington, he did a series a couple years ago, and he was the one that originated the bubble we used last week. And he did a series called Escaping Christianity. And every church in town began to criticize him. All the other pastors, and the stupid thing they did is they criticized them from the pulpit. And they said, well, that rock and roll church over there and that church with the loud music and the lights and, 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 and they're not preaching the truth over there. And what began to happen is all these guys that were bored to death in these boring churches started saying to their wives, well, honey, we need to go see if our pastor's telling the truth. We better go check this out and make sure, uh, you know, you know we, we, let's go see how wrong they are over there. And the church began to explode. And the more they criticized him, the more they grew. See, that's what it is. Followers of Jesus should never be narrow-minded. But we should walk through life with an open mind to what God is doing and see what God can do and see what the Holy Spirit can do. Let me get to the last point quickly as we start to close. Religion focuses on all the wrong things. Religion focuses on the minors instead of the majors. Religion focuses on preferences instead of convictions. See, my pastors always taught me, have convictions you'll die for, have a few convictions you'll die for, and have a lot of preferences you don't even bother fighting for. See, the problem with church is we split churches over preferences and not convictions. We, ch- we split church on the preference of what we prefer. Well, I prefer church to be like this, and I prefer church to be like this. And we've turned our preferences into convictions. Well, I like the music like this, or I I don't like the music like this, and they shouldn't be doing that song, and this is the song they should be doing, and I don't like the color of the carpet and the organ. If that moves, God forbid we're going to leave the church. And we destroy churches over, see, have a couple convictions you'll die for. Convictions, the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the only son of God. No other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ, Mary being a virgin. Those are convictions that I will die for, but I'm not going to fight you over preferences. Preferences don't matter to me. The only thing that matters to me is are we reaching people for Jesus? Are we creating an atmosphere of celebration in the Father's house? As, As Jesus said, this is what the Father's house is like. People say, well, what's your discipleship program? How many weeks do you make people go through it before they can serve? Well, I like discipleship method like Jesus taught. He said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men, period. It wasn't follow me and after eight weeks of this and nine weeks of that, when we get your doctrine correct and your theology right and you've you've earned your degree in our church, then you can serve. No, follow me and I'll make you a fisher for men. Plain and simple, easy to do. Or the churches that are King James only. How many have ever been to a King James only church? I actually went to a church one time where the pastor said, if you're reading anything other than a King James Bible, you might as well be reading a Playboy. And he was serious. I mean, he, he told the church, listen, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. I mean, in the world today, you, you tell people to read the King James Version, people are asking, what, did LeBron James write a Bible? 
Let me tell you something. If, if, if you're living in the slop and you're living in sin and you come to Jesus, then any translation of the Bible is better than what you have been reading. See, let me ask, what would, what would have happened if the older brother would have just gone in and experienced what was happening in the father's house? What if the older brother would have just said, look, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I may not fully agree with it, but it's the father's house. I'm just going to jump in by faith, by my relationship with the father and see what happens. Everything would have been so much different. What would have happened if the older brother would have been focusing on the lost son returning instead of the sin of the lost son? And the sad reality today is that older brother represents so many churches in America today. You know, it breaks my heart, church, that we've got people living in this area, living in slop. Their lives are broken. Their lives are falling apart. And they're going to go to churches in this area looking for help. And they're going to experience the spirit of the older brother instead of the spirit of the heart of the father. And many of them are never going to come back again. Because instead of finding God, they found the spirit of the older brother. They found the spirit. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you visited those churches. See, we need to be a church that celebrates the goodness of God, celebrates the heart of the Father. I want to be a church that when people come here, they feel the spirit of the Father. They feel the heart of the Father. They feel that love. They come into an environment where they feel loved. They feel accepted. They feel celebrated. I don't want them to come here with the older brother, Holy Glare, standing on the outside saying, we don't want them coming in here. I don't mess up what we got going. We got a good thing going here. No, we want to be a church that has open arms that says, come and worship Jesus with us. Come and find love. And that was the heart of the father. The prodigal son took one step and the father went running to him. I'll close with this video in a moment. 1992, the Olympics. Derek Redman was poised to win the 400-meter race. He was predicted to win gold. And about 250 meters from the finish line, Derek Redman tore his hamstring fell to the ground in agony and pain. But he made a decision that no matter what, despite the pain, he was going to do his best to finish the race. He started hobbling on one foot. And all of a sudden, as his father was sitting in the stands, brokenhearted after his son's pain, his son's heartache, his father broke through security, broke through the stands, ran to his son as fast as he could, picked up his son in his arms and began carrying him to the finish line. Said, you don't have to do it by yourself. You don't have to do it alone. I love you. I'm your father. I'll carry you home. And it was one of the most powerful representations I've seen of the heart of the father. Watch this with me.
omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord. Victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror, and the only time, the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me. He took me. Was the only time I ever saw him run.